0: What's up, Summit Church? How's everybody doing this weekend? We good? Woo! Awesome. Great. Well, my name is Jason Gaston. I'm the family ministries pastor here at the Summit. And before we get rolling today, uh, I just want you to know one thing. Actually, two things. Number one, I love interaction. And number two, I'm not yelling at you. I'm just loud. Can we just go ahead and set that precedent right now? Okay, great. So here's what I want us to do. Right now, if you're not comfortable with this, just do it to yourself, okay? I want you to high-five a neighbor right now and just be like, yo, what's up? High-five them. Boom. Let's go. You're like, bro, why did I just high-five my neighbor? Two really, really good reasons, I think. Number one, college football is back. Yes, sir. And number two, deer season starts next weekend. I thought everybody should get excited about that. That's right. Maybe that's how we roll. Well, uh, as you saw um, on the video uh, right before I stepped on this stage, man, God is up to some incredible things. Uh, Specifically this past summer, we had... Some incredible things happened in our kids' ministry and in our student ministry. I actually got to go and stay the night in a cabin with a bunch of second graders and third graders and scream my guts out with them and had a great time at camp and go to middle school and high school camp together. And, uh, you know, I've been at the church 10 years this weekend, actually. And uh, when I first got here uh, to the summit, we were just praying kids would show up on Wednesday nights for our first, like, student worship service. And uh, this summer, I believe we actually sent more students on international mission trips than we had show up to my first Wednesday night worship service. And that's that's not because like We've got some incredible staff and we've got some incredible workers. That's because God is really moving, I believe, uh, in the next generation. And um, man, we, I could stand up here and I can tell you stories uh, about the way that people are just man, being able to speak the truth of God's word and the family's lives. And the stories of kids like in second and third grade that are raising money to go overseas because their best friends, uh, you know, the whole family packed up and went overseas to go serve God uh, in international missions. Like God is is really moving and uh, if you're here uh, today and, and you serve faithfully in our kids ministry or in our student ministry I just want to tell you thank you so much for the way that you pour your life out whether you're holding the baby in the cuddlers class and like you're just pouring out you're drained and you don't feel like you're getting a whole lot in return, just know that the words that you're speaking over those kids mean the world to their families. And, uh, and so thank you for doing that. Um, if, uh, as you came in today, um, whether it was at the door or whatever campus you're at or maybe it was on your seat, you saw this card right here. This is our family ministry plan. And basically all this is is this just a just an overview f- uh, for you about what it looks like for us as a church to partner with you, the families, in helping see your kids come to love Christ, and be passionate about his mission. Uh, this just lays out kind of the steps and the wins and the journey along the way from the time they're born to the time that they hopefully graduate high school and get about with the rest of their life and they don't move back in with you, okay? That's right. That's what we're hoping will happen. You know, I, um, I get the awesome privilege of seeing God move in our family ministry firsthand. I, I'm seeing it right now uh, in our ministry, but I'm also seeing it because I have three kids that are faithfully engaged in this ministry, okay? Uh, my oldest son, um, his name is Holt, he's nine years old. We got any firstborns in the house? Raise your hand if you're a firstborn. All right, you guys, uh, if you hold true to, the, to the, the saying, you are like my son, you are type A's on crack. What that means is if, it, if it's not in the rule book, it ain't happening, okay? And if you step outside the rule book, you're in some deep trouble, right? Sometimes I just want to look at Holt and I'm like, bro, Loosen up. It's okay. Like, for instance, the day I took him this past spring break to New York City, uh, we took him to visit, uh, visit our high school students who were serving uh, in the city on mission, and it was his first plane ride. And um, because he's a rule follower, I sat on the aisle. He sat in the middle, and the, the, the seat uh, next to the window was empty. And when he sat down, he pulled out the little manual and started reading all the things he needs to know of what happens in case this thing goes down. But the first thing it says is to do what? Buckle up. Well, I sit down in the seat, and I'm not buckled because I fly a lot, and I know that someone is going to come and sit in that seat, meaning I'm going to have to unbuckle, get up, stand up. It's just a pain, right? You're like, come on. Holt's like jabbing me in the ribs. He's like, Dad, buckle up. I'm like, you, hush. All right, let's go. And then I've got a six-year-old daughter. Her name is Annie, and uh, let me just, just with Annie, you just need to know this. That's Daddy's girl, Okay. And uh, single guys, all right, if you got your eyes on a lady, I think I've shared this with you before, but I just want to reiterate it. This may be the most beneficial thing you hear. It probably is the most beneficial thing you'll hear all morning. That girl that you got the eyes for, you're like, mm-hmm, I want to marry that girl. You need to know that that's Daddy's girl. And Daddy has already Googled how to kill you and rip your Adam's apple out with his bare hands, okay? <laughs> that's Dad. That's me. Andy's first date, elbow drop on him, okay? And then, and then there's Parks, okay? Parks is the third child. We have these third children in the house, so you're like, yeah, I'm a third kid. Okay. Parks, Lord willing, is the last and final installment of the Gaston kids, all right? <laughs> and uh, Parks is your typical third kid. He's four years old. He's a psychobilly Ninja, all right? He's the type of kid that will run out of his room, buck naked, and doing wildly inappropriate things like hip thrusts and screaming things. Like, that's Parks, Okay. A couple years ago, I think it was about two and a half years ago now, I was on dad duty and I was at the ballpark. We know that dad duty oftentimes has the ability to go south quickly, right? I was on dad duty and uh, so I was just letting the kids run free and I was at the top of the hill at the ballpark and I was looking down between these two baseball fields where I saw Parks playing with older kids. He's like two and a half at the time. And so... I was, like, really excited. You know, it kind of just does your heart really well when you see, you know, older kids, like, engaging with your youngest child. You're like, man, this is so sweet. It's cute. It's awesome. They're playing a game of tag. It's great. And then I noticed that um, it wasn't really a game of tag. The older kids were actually running for their lives. (laughs) The reason is because at the time, um, I can't believe I'm going to tell you this story, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway, all right? So this is, if you're a guest here, this is not normal. just want you to know that, all right? Um, Parks at the time who was potty training, uh, decided, man, it's a long walk up that hill, and I'm having a lot of fun. I'm not going to go up there to go to the bathroom, I'm just going to go in my pants. And so he did what any good two-and-a-half-year-old would do that wanted to play. He just unloaded in his diaper, okay? So the problem with that, though, is that he wanted to play, and when he unloaded on himself he realized that it's pretty uncomfortable. So he did naturally what a two-year-old would do. He, you know, just kind of reached his hand down his, his backside, and he grabbed whatever was in there, if you know what I'm saying, okay, and he took it. Now, I've never been, a, I've never been big on the theory of evolution, but at this moment, I thought, this could be true. He started taking his stuff, and he was flinging it at everybody, right, bow, bow, just peppered them, just darting them with you-know-whats, okay, and um, I guess I'd caught caught eye on this. I saw this a, a couple of moments afterwards, and he thought everything was done because he was, he was free, right? And so he was like, it's time to play tag again, but he was chasing all of his buddies, and they were still screaming. Why? Because he still had the stench and the residue on his fingertips, okay? All right, the world's worst sermon introduction right here, all right? You're like, are you getting ready to apply this to the Bible? I'm a youth pastor. I can do that, all right? I believe wholeheartedly that there's something of a stench that a lot of us can't see in our lives that everyone else around us sees. And that is what I call the stench of uh, an undisciplined life, the stench of laziness. You know, the past several weeks we've been studying in the life of Solomon. We've been going through Ecclesiastes, and today we're going to pick up in the book of Proverbs and kind of bring it into the, the study on Solomon. And next week we'll kick off a new series. Pastor J.D. will be here, and we'll kick off a new series in the book of Galatians. But... Solomon in the book of Proverbs, one of the most common themes that you see listed all throughout the book is actually the theme of laziness. Uh, What you see actually, uh, there's a proverb that says, uh, that is written, it says, the stain of indiscipline in adulthood is like a turd in the hands of one's youth. Okay, it doesn't really say that. I made that up. It's not true, all right? But it does show you that you too can make up a proverb and be really wise today, okay? You know, Proverbs does give us, however, a lot of instruction. A lot of rebuke and a lot of, a lot of encouragement in what it looks like to, for us as people to walk in discipline. And he rebukes us in when we're living lives of laziness. Let's, let's look at a couple verses right here. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 25 says this. The desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. You're like, that is every teenager that's ever lived in my home right there. Lazy bums won't do jack, right? You're like, that's, that's, my, that's my kids right there, okay? I, I think that's most of us too. How about this? Proverbs chapter 12, verse 27 says this, The lazy man does not roast his game, but the diligent man prizes his possession. Literally, what that means is, I'm a hunter, okay? So I go out, I, I shoot a deer with my bow and arrow, and I just watch it die in the field, and I leave it, get in my truck, go home. That's the lazy man, Okay? But the diligent man goes over, takes a deer, gets it processed, and then you, you know, you hamburger it up, and then you eat it in your venison spaghetti like I did last night, okay? That's the diligent man. The, the lazy man is an easy target for PETA, All right, that's how we roll right there. All right, now check out this one right here. Proverbs 18, verse 9 says this: the one who is slack in his work is brother to one who destroys. Literally, what Solomon says. Your laziness has more implications than you think. Your laziness isn't actually doing you any good. It's actually bringing destruction to yourself and, as we'll see a little bit later, to the people around you. Now, what's a good summit sermon without a quote from Charles Spurgeon? Look at this right here. To all my lazy ones. Now, don't be like jabbing your neighbor right now and be like, yo, listen up. Okay, this is us. To all my lazy ones. You had better be your own trumpeter because no one else can find any good in you to praise. Basically, what Spurgeon just said is all you do is run your mouth about how awesome you are, but everyone else around you is like you are the laziest joker on the planet Earth. I find, literally, he says, I find no good in you. You're like, all right, slacker, we got all these mental images. Let me just do this for a second. Why don't you just close your eyes, okay? Just close your eyes for a second. We're gonna take a journey, okay? Close your eyes. Seriously, you, you are not better than this. You have to close your eyes, okay? Close your eyes. We're going to take a journey back somewhere that a lot of you have been trying to forget for a long time. High school. Okay? Are you there? Picture yourself in biology class. Got it? Okay. Now I'm going to say these two words. Group projects. <laughs> all right, now, open your eyes. How many of you absolutely hated group projects? Raise your hand. Cross all of our kids. You hated. Put them up high. Like, let us see them. Put them up high. You hated group projects. Okay, put your hands down. How many of you, you're like, group projects, yeah, yeah, put your hands up right now. Put them up really high. Leave them up. Leave them up. Put them up. Put them up. High. All right. If you're anything like me, the reason you loved group projects is because everyone else did all the work. (laughs) Right? And guess what? For those of you that raised your hands last, the people that raised their hands, they hated you. (laughs) They despised you. Like, when you rolled up, you're like, hey, guys, can I be in your group? They're like, good lord, not him, right? Anybody but him. We all have images in our mind of what the lazy man looks like. Whether it's the deadweight guy in your group project class in biology in high school, or whether it's the idea of a 25, 35 year old guy or lady that moves back home with mom and dad after they went off to college. They're living in mom and dad's basement, right? And they're on Facebook all the time, engaging in all kinds of conversations. They got no hope of getting married, it's not looking good. They're binge-watching every season of Friday Night Lights on Netflix, right? Clear eyes, full hearts. Can't lose. If you didn't know how to answer that, shame on you, okay? Right? Well, listen, whether it's that guy or it's in high school class with you or whether it's the guy that's living in his mom's basement, they're not a sluggard because they binge-watch Netflix. That's not what makes them lazy. What makes them a sluggard, according to the definition is that they're binge-watching Netflix when they should be doing something else. More clearly defined, it, it would be like this, okay? The sluggard, you need to write this down, the sluggard is someone who does something no matter how good. The sluggard is someone who does something no matter how good at the expense of doing what is what? Most important. You sacrifice, like literally, it'd be like God says to you, hey, I want you to do blank. And you say, Ah, uh, I think I'm going to do blank instead. And here are the 10 or 15 logical reasons why I think that is completely okay. Now, I joke about the Netflix thing, right? But, uh, but really, okay, I think this is important because it shows the desire of laziness that we have in all of us. Have you ever been watching that episode? Right? You're like, boom, watched it. And then when you finished it, that dreaded little button in the bottom right corner popped up. It said the next ec- episode will start in 30, 29, 28. And you have a choice to make in that moment, don't you? You're like, all right, it's 9.30 at night. I should probably go upstairs and brush my teeth and get ready for bed. But what do you do instead? You click that button, and now you're two episodes deep. And then that ends, and what do you do? Three episodes, four episodes, five. Before you know it, you have watched nine episodes of Friends, because your wife made you, right? And you're like, I don't even know how I got here when what you should have been doing is getting your rear end in in bed. We sacrifice on the altar what is most important for what we think is good for us right now. and Today, what I want to do is I want to show us that I believe three areas of our lives that every single person under the sound of my voice needs some encouragement or rebuke in areas of laziness that Solomon expresses in the book of Proverbs. Those three areas, those three areas are going to be in our workplace, in our relationship, and in our holiness, okay? All right, let's get rolling. All right, you need to stop being slack in your work. You need to stop being slack in your work. Now, most of us think, we have this idea, we think that, man, if I could just make millions and retire in my mid-30s, early 40s, then I can really do what I want to do with the rest of my life. The problem with that mindset, however, is that it creates in you a restlessness that you don't know how to satisfy. Let me make this a really tangible um, illustration for you, okay? Sweetheart, I know you're here. I want you to know that this is, this is just a sermon illustration, okay? It's not, I don't feel like this when I'm at home, okay? So you're home on vacation. Day four rolls around. And you're like, dude, I cannot wait to get back to work because you've done everything you can around the house. The kids are driving you crazy, and you're like, I got to get back. I'm about to pull my hair out. And your spouse is looking at you, and you're like, dude, you got to get back to work because you're killing every rhythm that's ever been in this house. That's one week. Now imagine 20 years of that. Imagine living your life for 20 years like that. It's because you and I were created to work. You see, when God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden, he didn't just tell him to keep away from certain fruit, from certain trees. God placed Adam in the Garden. Check this out in Genesis chapter 2. This is the first thing that he says to him. He said, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? What? to work the garden, and to keep the garden. Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you'll notice that this command, this instruction that God gives Adam, is really important because it happens before sin enters the world. Now, that's really important for us because most of us have a lens in our life that we think work is God smiting his people because of our rebellion in our life. When really what we need to see is that we were created and designed to work. You're like, dude, I hear you. I get it. But you've never been in a cubicle at the workplace. My job is miserable. Okay, I hear you. but, but, But listen to me first, okay? The first purpose that God had in mind for Adam wasn't to make lots of money. It wasn't to pray. It wasn't to go to youth camp or the fellowship suppers, no matter how awesome they were, okay? His first task that God gives him in the garden was to make babies and to be a good farmer. And all the rednecks said, amen, okay? (laughs) That was God's first task. Think about it like this, like just some jobs, just natural that we have in the world right now, contractors, builders, what do they do? They take things from the natural state, wood, water, sand, make it concrete, whatever it is, and what do they do with those things? They construct homes for who? People, and what do people do in homes? They dwell there. Your job is more beneficial for the sake of humanity than you think. What do artists do? They take a blank canvas and they take color and they fling it all over there and they create something that I have no idea most of the time how to interpret, but it's called art. Right? And people enjoy art. God takes a a routine ground ball in a baseball game and he gives us this dance of beauty with a 6-4-3 double play. We take things that seem normal or seem there just in general in life and we create from it because that's what you and I were created to do. What if God's answer to the prayer, give us this day, our daily bread, was his answer was through you? What if he feeds you through the farmer that's, that's just going hard at it in the summer to make sure the crops get there so you can have bread on the table? What if God takes the the labor of the chemist in the lab to use all these things to find medicines that help cure people? Find a cure for cancer that we're praying for. You were created to work. Get to work. But not only were you created to work, you were created to work with excellence. Now, if our work as believers is to be done for the sake of Christ, it should be done to the best of our ability. Colossians chapter 3 verse 17 says this. Paul writing, he says, in whatever you do, whether you're in school, whether you play sports, whether you're in the workplace, whatever you do, everything, in word or in deed, whatever you say, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ giving thanks to God the Father through him. That means every act of work that we do is an act of worship and it should be done with excellence. Practically speaking, you know what that means? We should stop doing crummy work. We should stop cutting corners because it's easy. You know how I know that we do this? Because I do it all the time, and I see my kids do it all the time. I got a kid, comes home, has 20 math problems, sits down at the table. Three minutes later, he's done. I'm like, hey, did you do your homework? Yeah, I did my homework. Yeah, right. There's no way you went through 20 multiplication problems and did them with excellence. Remember this proverb, Proverbs 18, verse 9, the one who is slack in his work, the one who cuts corners, the one who does not do the things he is called to do with excellence is brother to the one who destroys. That means when we do a lackluster job in our work, we run from the very thing that we were created to do, and we actually don't bring about helping humanity, we actually bring about destruction to them. Now, I totally get that some of you are in the workplace right now, and your workplace environment stinks. You're like, dude, my boss has never praised me, right? I've, um, I've worked really hard to get the raise, right, that I've been working hard. By the way, we know how that turned out for Clark Griswold, right? Not good. You, n- you, never, you never get the praise and approval that you have from your, your boss, I get that 100%, but let me just encourage you in this, that Christians ought to pursue excellence in their work, not because they want to impress their boss or because they're getting that raise this year. We do it because Jesus deserves it. He deserves our best. You know, C.S. Lewis once noted how valleys undiscovered by human eyes are still filled with beautiful flowers. The question then being posed is, who did God create that beauty for if no human eyes would ever see it? He answers it by saying that God does some things only for his own pleasure. He sees even when no one else does. That's important because for a lot of us, this is a new lens that we're working from here. That means that for the Christian, we no longer require the approval of others in our work because we already have the approval of God. We start from that place and now we work hard from there. If Jesus truly is everything that we need for everlasting joy... We work from that place, and if we get the high-five from the boss, awesome. But if not, we know that Jesus still sees our work when it's done with excellence because it's done as an act of worship. Number two, we need to stop being slack in our relationships. Stop being slack in your relationships. I could take this 50 gurgillion different ways. But because I'm standing up uh, up here and no one else is, I'm going to talk very specifically to one aspect of relationships, parenting. We need to stop being slack in our parenting. Now, the goal of Christian parenting is defined really clearly all throughout Scripture. You see it, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Solomon says, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I could take you to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I could take you to Psalm 127. I I can take you all of Psalm 78. I can take you all over the place. But since we're in Proverbs, that's a good place to start, right? Solomon says... You have a duty, a responsibility to train up your child in the way that they should go. That way when they are old, they will not depart to the left or the right, but they will stay on the straight and narrow. That's the call of the Christian parent. Now, Jesus takes that, he high-fives it, and he says, yep, let's take that to the next level in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. He says, now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, he says, and make disciples of all nations. That's the job description for every Christian. To make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded to you. You're like, yeah, okay, dude, I've been in church for a long time. Matthew 28, that's the missions verse. We put it on all of our our missions t-shirts. We put it on our mugs. We do it all over the place, right? What's that got to do with, with parenting? Everything. Because as believers, our north star for parenting is that our kids would become disciples of Christ. And the home is the first mission field. And if we're going to be a church that's really passionate about seeing the nations come to faith in Christ, we cannot neglect the greatest mission field down our hallways. We've got to be passionate about seeing our kids come to love Jesus and be passionate about his mission. Now, I think if... I think this would be true. None of y'all would be like, boo. You're like, yeah, dude, that's my desire. I, I want that for my kids. Then where are we going wrong? I would say the, the reason we're going, we're going the opposite direction is because our lives are full of distractions that keep us focused on the main thing. They're full of good things that come along, good, like good things that come along, but we get swallowed up in them and they distract us. Now, The thing that I want to talk very specifically to here, okay, I think this kind of relates to everybody's relationships, the number one distraction I think is most prevalent in every single one of our lives is what I call the rectangle of doom, your smartphone, okay? Now, you need to hear this, okay? I am not anti-smartphone. I have a smartphone. I love it. My life depends on it, it feels like. And that thing crashes, I'm like, oh, my Lord Jesus, what am I going to do, okay? Sherry Turkle, she wrote a book called Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age. It's a New York Times bestseller. It's not a, like, if you're looking for, like, gospel application points, you're not going to get it from that, okay? But it's a phenomenal book, and I highly encourage you to read it, okay? She says this. She says that our digital world and technology has literally transformed the way that we are interacting with one another. Now, picture this. You come home from a long day's work. You sit down, and your kids climb up in your lap. You're like, man, I'm going to give my attention to my kids right here. I put the phone in the pocket. Or... Maybe you've been begging to have that conversation with your teenager and they finally give in. You come home from work and they're ready to talk. So you're like, boom, this is everything I hoped for. Phone in the pocket. Here we go. Conversations happen. You're reading the book. You're talking to the teenager. And all of a sudden, the dreaded bing happens in your pocket. You ever been there before? Holy smokes. Every day. Right? Okay. Or it starts buzzing. So what do you do? Kids are in your lap. What do you do? You start to like the reach around, like trying to navigate through the kids. And you start to pull out that phone, pull it out. And you're like, ah, someone just tweeted at me. Or uh, in, in that moment, when your teenager that you've been begging to have a conversation with sitting right across from you is finally there ready to talk. Or the kids are sitting in your lap and you're ready to get into it. And all of a sudden, your phone interrupts you. What we start to do, she says, is we, we begin to neglect our own flesh and blood in that very moment for a digital world that constantly, constantly leaves us chasing. And then she goes on to say, she goes, not only is it giving us a distraction away from the people right in front of us, but it's actually beginning to deaden our senses. She does this crazy research study on college students about the implications that it's having, right? And how literally text messaging is, is deadening their ability to relate with one another. Let's, let's look at it like this. Okay, a buddy of yours sends you a text. They're like, awesomest video ever. you got to watch the Domingo Ayala video that I'm getting ready to see, send you, okay? It's hilarious. you got to watch it. So you pull it up, you watch it. You're like, oh, that's funny. And you reply back with this right here. You ever done that? By the way, I think a number one rule with anyone that uses emojis, which I use, is before you send it, you should actually try to do whatever it is you're going to send. So, like, make that face. Right? Or who actually gives thumbs up? Like, most of us don't actually give thumbs up, right? Okay, so you send that back in a text message to your friend. Or if it was really funny, you send back nine of them in a row. You're like, that was really funny. Ah," Right? You're just rolling. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been guilty of sending that back in something, but you actually weren't laughing? (laughs) Yeah? Absolutely. And what's happening is, is that the implications that this is having on our relationships with one another, we're actually losing the ability to empathize with our own kids. She later goes on to, to take note that even the very presence of a phone face down on a table lessens The quantity and the quality of conversation. Why? Because the person sitting across from you knows that at any minute you can be interrupted and all of a sudden your attention that was there goes where? Here. Now listen, if we're called to have incredible relationships with each other, with our friends, with our colleagues, with our kids, how are we going to start impressing the gospel in their lives? Training them up in the way that they should go. Learning to celebrate with them in their joys and actually being excited with them. Or learning to hurt with them when they're actually hurting, when we're full of distractions that lead us the other way and it's deadening our hearts. We're literally trading in our own flesh and blood for the digital world. Super encouraging, right? You're like, oh man, that's awesome. Thanks a lot. Where do we start? I would just encourage you to start evaluating the rhythms of your life. Okay? Just evaluate. We evaluate everything in life, and evaluation is a good thing. You get evaluated six months into your job, right? That's healthy because your boss wants to know how you're doing, where you're going. We evaluate athletes to figure out should they play or should they sit the bench, right? Evaluation is huge because it measures progress and it offers a chance for correction. Why would we neglect evaluating our family rhythms? Why? If that's the first mission field, why would we evaluate everything in the world except for the very place that God has called us to go? Maybe it's just something as simple as like buying a box. I've tried this. It doesn't work all the time. It works sometimes. we got a little box in our house right on the counter. When you come inside, you're like, drop your phone in there and don't touch it for the next few hours. Set up like a time frame. That way you can actually give your children or your spouse or your friends when they come over some actual attention. And then like when they all go to bed or they finally leave the house, you can hustle back over there and find out all the urgent things that you've been missing in the world since you've been gone for the last two hours, right? I mean, it's amazing how, how tied our hearts to, are to the, to the rectangle of doom. Whatever it is, guys, listen, whatever it is, I don't know what you're, What just evaluate and for the love of God, start acting in this way because it's ruining our relationships. Number three, we need to stop being slack in our holiness, You need to stop being slack in your holiness. Now, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says this. Solomon says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's where where walking with the Lord begins. It begins with trusting and believing. If you start from anywhere else, you've missed it. It starts with trust. Then he says, Now, in all of your ways, acknowledge him, remember him. And then he will make your path straight. So when you begin to trust in the Lord, what he does is he puts a path in front of you. Let me ask you a question. What do you do with the path? Do you marvel at how beautiful, whoa, what a path. The architect of that path was phenomenal. No, you don't, you're not told to set back and look at a path from a distance and be like, that's a great path. What do you do with the path? You walk it. You put your feet to the ground and you start heading in a direction. This is really important because I think a lot of us have really, as Christians, we've bought into a lie that we think that we're naturally going to drift towards holiness. You and I, our heart's inclination is to not naturally drift. Holiness doesn't just happen out of thin air. And if we think it does, we've got a few misconceptions about what it looks like to live in a fallen world. Because the scripture teaches us that we have an enemy that is active in trying to make you bored, or make you really busy, and make you forget about what it means to really start following Jesus and walking. Literally we have to fight for our holiness every single day. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.1, so then dear friends, since we have these promises, we have the promises of God, since God has given us his word, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit. Literally. Like, it's an action word. Let us begin to walk in holiness. And he says, bringing what to completion? Say it. What is that word? Holiness to complete. That means you're not there yet. I'm not there yet. There is work that needs to be done. And apart from grace driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godly disciplines. We drift more towards disobedience and we call it freedom in Christ. We drift towards prayerlessness and we say, at least I'm not a legalist, some of us really, really, really need to hear this part, guys, because just because Jesus did the work on our behalf at the cross of Christ, it doesn't mean you and I have no work to do in our holiness. If we're huddled up every week at church and we're in the huddle, we're getting to play, but we never actually get out and start running the play, we're fools. What that means is when you show up sometimes at church and you hear Pastor J.D. or whoever's up here or wherever it is you go to church, you hear them giving you some really good wisdom. You're like, man, that was awesome. That's really good. And you don't actually put it into practice. You're like the man who looks in the mirror and forgets himself. There is work that needs to be done. Guys, listen. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is action. Discipleship in its original form, it's actually very Jewish nature. It's a a very Jewish way of teaching. It's not just merely scholastic. You don't just sit down and learn and take it all in here. It's literally following following the way of the rabbi. There was an old saying that you would have the dust of the rabbi on your face because you were walking so closely to him that you went everywhere that he went. If he stepped in it, you stepped in it. That means discipleship requires actions. Listen Listen to what the big dog, the Apostle Paul, remember, Paul was like QB1 of the early church, okay? He was the guy. People were like, Paul's writing to me, man, this must be big time. What's he got to say? This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Do you hear that? Nothing else I do forms my identity except for the grace of God. My identity is not found in anything except for the grace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where he roots his life in God's grace. Then he says, but because of God's grace I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. What Paul is saying is God's grace did not make me passive. He says that God's grace actually supplies the means for discipline and effort. And every ounce of effort and energy that he expends in his life, he expends out of an act of God's grace. What that means, church, is that grace and effort are not foes, they're friends. Grace is the fuel, and effort and discipline is the vehicle. You know, the most liberating words of the Christian that were spoken at the cross when Jesus said, it is what? Finished. That means, for your salvation... There is literally nothing you can do to earn the favor and ap- approval of God. God satisfied his wrath fully on the shoulders of Jesus at the cross of Christ. And that if you are in Christ, God's wrath is no longer on you, but he sees in you now as a son and daughter of the most high king. You can't earn that approval. It has to be given to you. And it's given to us in Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. That's where salvation starts. And the call to God's people is to believe that, to trust in it. And if we start anywhere else, if we start by work and effort, we start in the wrong place, and we grow weary and tired and burden our entire lives, and we end up pushing it away because we bought into a lie. The gospel is believe it, rest in it. But Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2 that it is by grace he has been saved through faith. It's not from himself because there's nothing he could do to earn it, but it is the gift of God. Why? So that no man can boast about his abilities. But then he goes on to say this. He says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Paul shouts amen to it is finished. That's the starting block of my life. And then he says, now let's get to work because we got places to go and we got places we need to grow. Where are you being slack in your life right now? Is it in your workplace? You cutting corners? You're not living your life with excellence and doing everything you do for the glory of God or you turning in crummy work? Are we being lazy in our relationships with one another? Do we need a swift kick in the pants a little bit if you know what I'm saying from the Lord about how we're loving and investing in our children to raise them up to love God to love others to love his mission? Or have you just thrown in the towel on your holiness and think hey God save me I'm done. Maybe you need to be reminded of the grace that God has given you that supplies the means for walking in holiness every single day. There's a sluggard in us all, and he needs to be slapped in the face. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for your grace. It is sufficient for us. Your power truly is made perfect in our weakness. I thank you for the gift of salvation that's found in the cross of Christ. If there's nothing we can do to earn it, you gave it as a free gift. Thank you. But God, I pray that your grace extended towards us would propel our hearts and our lives to movement. We know, Lord Jesus, that belief propels actions. So God, make us a people that are active in the workplace to worship you through our work and do it, to do it well. May we be active in our relationships with our kids and with others for your glory. And God, may we be active in fighting against sin and pursuing holiness for your name's sake in our lives that we, we might be more like Christ and less like our old self. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.